J.R.R. Tolkien. Who was he? Where did he come from? Part 1. J.R.R. Tolkien was born in Bloemfontein, South Africa, okay? And it was actually known as Orange Free State. It wasn't known as South Africa at the time. His father, Arthur Tolkien, was a bank manager and got a job there. Um, working administration and management for this bank. He also had some investments in mines there and had moved his wife, Mabel, there with him. And in 1892, they uh, had a baby boy named J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, that's John Ronald Rayl Tolkien. John Ronald was then followed shortly thereafter by his little brother, Hillary. Uh, so they were both born in South Africa. And they lived there for a few years. Um, while there, we know that the climate and the sun didn't really agree very well with Tolkien. He, you know, he was uh, had a fair complexion, and um, I think I think his, his he didn't tolerate the climate too well. Uh, he was also bitten by a spider there, which might have something to do with the spiders that we find in the Hobbit. Maybe. I mean, it wasn't like he was an arachnophobe or anything. But you know, you have Ungoliant, you have Shelob. Uh, you have you have Shelob in, in Return of the King. You have a Goliath in um, the Silmarillion, and, and uh, you have spiders in the Hobbit that are all bad. You know, it's not like Harry Potter where you have Aragog, who Hagrid really believes in Aragog, and Aragog is a nice spider, and nobody understands him. But he's got all these children who want to eat people. No, nothing like that. All the spiders in Lord of the Rings are bad. Easy for Tolkien to vilify. He doesn't like spiders. Um, but I looked up to try to find out what kind of spider bit him, and apparently it was like a baboon spider, which I didn't, I've never heard of baboon spider. I'm sure there's some scientific binomial nomenclature name for it. I do not know the name for it, but that's the one, that's the type of spider that they think bit him. So that's an interesting fact about Tolkien's life in South Africa. Um, and, uh, they lived there for a couple of years, okay? Mabel then takes the boys back to England to visit family in Evesham and uh, in the Warwickshire area. And um, unfortunately, that visit turned into a permanent stay because Arthur Tolkien passed away from rheumatic fever. Very sad. Uh, so Tolkien kind of loses his father before he ever really gets a chance to know him. And he's there with his mother and his brother in Warwickshire, England. Um, now, one word, a little bit about Hillary Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's little brother. Hillary Tolkien was a uh, got into agriculture. He liked farming. Um, he was a World War One vet. He was actually a bugler in World War One. So uh, Hillary's job was to stand while in battle while there's artillery pieces raining down steel rain on fixed locations in the trenches. And while machine gun fire is going, and play a bugle. So, that I mean, if you're going to look at somebody who is, you know, gosh, I mean, that's that's a pretty um, courageous and uh, incredible thing to do. Um, you look, you know, he, he actually uh, he's wounded there. He he has shrapnel a shrapnel wound, um, but um, you know does his job and goes home and. He purchases a small orchard, and he lives there. He is happily married. He has three boys. And um, Tolkien and his wife, Edith, would often visit 
uh, Hillary. Um, but one thing about Hillary that I think is really funny, Hillary had a dog, okay? So, and, <laughs> you know, to, I probably to, as a playful jest towards his Oxford professor, world-renowned, um, you know, basically worshipped brother, you know, people know him all over the world for the, for his academic achievements and his, and his novels, um, probably to poke fun at his brother, uh, uh, John Ronald, he names his dog Bilbo, okay? And he calls his dog Bilbo when it's being good. But when Hillary Tolkien's dog is being bad, he calls it Baggins. So I just think that's really funny. <laughs> Look, if you're as nerdy as me, you get a big kick out of that when you find out. I mean, you just have this mental picture of him calling his dog Baggins <laughs> when it's bad. Anyway, so back to Tolkien. So Tolkien and his mom and his brother, they go to England to visit family. And while there, Arthur Tolkien dies, passes away. So that turns into, the visit turns into a permanent stay. And they're now living there. Um, Mabel, she was not Anglican like the rest of the family, which was a big deal back then. Uh, that that kind of caused a rift between her and her, her in-laws. And the people who could have helped her take care of John and Hillary, they were, were now uh, sort of shunning her. And um, she stuck to her guns. She was a devout Catholic. She wasn't going to compromise there. And so she reached out to a local minister. His name was Father Francis Morgan. And he would become a fa kind of a, a father figure to the boys. He took them kite flying, and they went and uh, did hikes together. And he was just really, really a great man. And um, he uh, was very involved in their lives. Mabel was somewhat of a scholar herself. She taught Tolkien French and German and I believe some Spanish and some Latin and some Greek. And so she already had him, you know, kind of had his toes dipped into lots of languages early in his life and had him reading at age, age four. Um, Tolkien uh, would have read books like uh, Robert Browning's The Pied Piper, Hans Christian Andersen's Fairy Tales, Andrew Lang's Fairy Tales, um, he liked George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin, anything that had kind of a, uh, a fantastic, you know, uh, dragons and adventure feel. He didn't like Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. He didn't like uh, Charles Ludwig Dawson, who is Lewis Carroll. Uh, that's, his, that's Lewis Carroll's pen name. Um, he didn't like Alice in Wonderland. He thought it was amusing but disturbing, which is kind of funny. Um, and his schoolmaster actually really was disappointed and kind of mystified because Tolkien did not like poetry. He would skip over it when he would read it, um, which is odd because, you know, in all of his works, he's got all this poetry scattered throughout. So at some point, you know, have this change where a guy who doesn't like poetry likes poetry. And the first poet that Tolkien liked and the, the, the pro person who actually got Tolkien, uh, just like Tolkien got me reading, the person who got Tolkien into poetry was a Catholic poet by the name of Francis Thompson, who wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Now, The Hound of Heaven is also referenced by one of Tolkien's fr uh, friends that would uh, come along later down the road in Tolkien's adulthood, uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis also references The Hound of Heaven, but The Hound of Heaven refers to uh, the Holy Spirit's pursuit of people, and that that pursuit is relentless and to the end of their days, whether they like it or not. So, um, that's sort of an interesting connection. Tolkien himself was a devout Catholic throughout his life. Uh, that, that connection to poetry was deeply connected to his faith. So Tolkien 
also was taught uh, how to draw by his mom. She, she tried to teach him piano, but he really didn't like it. Um, he wasn't really much of a, a, a music fan, but she did succeed in teaching him how to draw. And a lot of his illustrations are not only captured in some of his um, covers that he illustrated for his own books, but also in his letters to children uh, for Christmas. People would, kids would write to, to Father Christmas, and Tolkien was one of the people designated to answer those letters. So he has some really cool illustrations um, and penmanship that he also kind of inherited from his mom. Uh, you can kind of see some of his calligraphy here. They also represent this in Lord of the Rings in some of the ways that, you know, the calligrapher who was the artist for the film uh, tries to match Tolkien's actual calligraphy, which is pretty cool. When Bilbo is, you know, writing, um, and he lived happily ever to the end of his days, you know, and they show that. Um, or, in, um, you know, he has maps and letters scattered throughout his table. A lot of that is comes directly from Tolkien's actual artwork. I really like this one. It's a Christmas uh, it's a, it says Merry Christmas. It just has the world on it. I just think this is really pretty cool. Uh, uh, just a just a neat moment and a neat piece of art from Tolkien himself that a lot of, you know a lot of people just don't even know that he was actually an artist. But um, words were really more what he was interested in. When he and his mom would go on the subway, or the, actually it was the rail, not the subway, but the, the rail station, he would look at all the different names of all the all the different streets, and it would have names for different languages, and that was very interesting to him. He liked the way words, words sounded. He liked the way words moved people's mouths. He liked how the sounds indicated what it meant. The signifier, the signifier indicated the signified. That was what he loved. And I believe, uh, according to Tom Shippey, um, Tolkien's favorite word combination in the English language was cellar door. And he liked that word combination because not only did it describe something beautiful and inspiring, it also sounded beautiful. So he liked the way language sounded. He liked the way he liked the structures inside of it that created meaning to people. So that started at an early age with Tolkien. Tolkien's mom got him into a really great school. It was a school established in 1552 called King Edward's. It's still there today. You can go see it. And I've, I haven't been there, but if you look at pictures, you'll see sort of a Hogwarts style in uh, a great hall, you know, with all the wood beams. I mean, you can just see the candles hanging from the ceiling. You can see you know, uh, a, a rank-and-file group of students walking in, you know, very organized, very regimented. Um, and he would he would attend King Edwards uh, from his uh, elementary through his high school, although he did attend one uh, other school briefly. He attended a Catholic school briefly. Uh, he far outstripped his peers there, and King Edwards was the clear choice for him. It was a much better school for him. There, um, he started reading... Uh, Chaucer by age 10. He also picked up um, the uh, Chambers Etymolo Etymo Etymological Dictionary uh, from, one of his, uh, from one of his headmasters, and he began to observe Grimm's Law, which Grimm's Law is uh, sort of a principle of language change, okay? So languages, they change over time, sounds shift over time, and it's in a predictable pattern. Tolkien started to observe that and learn that at a young age. He also began playing with languages and, and writing his own languages very young. And this was not something that he did by himself. He, uh, he and his cousin, I believe his, her name was Mary, they did it together. They made a language called Nevbosh. Nevbosh was sort of a Pig Latin-y style language where there's sort of a one-to-one -one relationship between, you know, this word just replaces the English words. There's not really much of like a grammatical difference. It's just a sound difference. So it sounds 
the, the language they made sound sounded different, but it, it really was more like a cipher than a language. Um, later, as he learned a little bit more about you know the actual structures and how to play how to compose new languages with those, he came up with a language called Neferin, and that had some uh, Spanish overtones. Uh, and interestingly enough, people think that he he came up with that language because Father Francis Morgan was Spanish and he had a Spanish accent and Tolkien wanted to sound a little bit like his mentor father figure and did so with Neferin. So just to um, you know, emphasize the point that Tolkien was gifted in languages at a young age, uh, he won first prize in German at King Edward's in, uh, 19, in July of, of 1910. But by then, uh, he had already kind of moved on, and he was he, uh, although he was interested in you know Latin and Greek and all of that, and obviously you know schools today and back then they really emphasize learning Latin and Greek because you know Latin there the Bible is old world Bibles written in Latin, um, old world Bibles written in Greek. Uh, there's uh, myths and less legends and. Um, Iliad and the Odyssey, and and you know lots of literature. That they, there's a lot of academic equity and reasons why knowing those languages can help you in other areas of academia. Not so for the northern languages that Tolkien was really interested in, like Anglo-Saxon, Gothic, Icelandic, Finnish. All of those languages he really wanted to know more about, and he wanted to ex expose the elements of history and culture that were embedded in those languages that nobody had really emphasized before. He felt that was just as important as knowing, if not more for him, than knowing Latin and Greek. So he wins the prize for German in 1910, and he picks up Joseph Wright's Gothic Primer, which was an explanation of the Gothic language. Now, one scholar, Michael Drought, and I say scholar, he's actually a, a Tolkien expert, Wheaton professor, is world-renowned for his Tolkien studies, and, and um, his also, his knowledge of philology and Anglo-Saxon and everything. Michael Drought's awesome. He actually did a series called "Of Sorcerers and Men," which you can find online. Actually, I don't know if it's still if they're still making it, but you, I know you can find it on eBay, and I think that you can find it on Amazon. And I I haven't found it on Spotify or any of the digital platforms. I think you have to buy you have to get it on CD. But uh, it's a great series. Michael Drought's awesome. Michael Drought points out that there the body of literature that exists in original Gothic is very small. There's a lot of words, there's a lot of phrases that are just unknown. And Tolkien, when he was studying it, he looked at how the words sounded, he looked at how the grammar was, and he began to invent in that language, and he would fill in those gaps. And a lot of the Gothic poetry that exists is Tolkien's poetry. So Tolkien has written more Gothic poetry than the Goths, than, ex than we have remaining from the actual Gothic people, which is kind of interesting. So Tolkien wins first prize in German, and he uh, has already moved on to learn Gothic. And while he's doing that and breaking down that language, he invited one of his friends, Christopher Wiseman, into that process. They were of like mind. They liked languages. They liked puzzles. They liked pattern recognition. And they together uh, became known as the Great Twin Brethren, uh, good friends. And they formed the core of a larger group known as the TCBS. Now, the TCBS, what does that stand for? This is the T Club and Bavarian Society. Now, it was named after a place they met called the Barrow Store. Okay, that's what it was called at the time. It's now called the Square Peg, and you can, if you look it up online, TripAdvisor will recommend it as a place that you should go visit because it's where Tolkien met with his friends when he was a boy. 
And uh, I actually think there's a few people around who actually would probably go visit that. But there, they would drink tea, and they would um, talk about all kinds of outlandish things, other languages. They would argue. They would they would debate. Sometimes they would debate in Latin. And um, they would talk about each other's artistic ambitions. They would talk about works that they uh, had read. They, they talked through Beowulf. They talked through Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, they, you know, they were in plays together in school and talk about that. They all played rugby together. They just needed a place to not have to be all uptight at school and just, just, just have fun and be friends. So, um, this, the TCBS was also kind of a, uh, you could think of it as sort of a reading and writing group. Uh, and this was not uncommon for people to form groups like this back then. Um, you know, you had uh, men's groups like the um, the Royal Society in London, where it's sort of the, these intellectually dominant gentlemen get together. They gamble. They talk about sports. They talk. They they argue politics and religion, and they just need an escape from the domesticity of sophisticated European life. You know, they're not uh, running around uh, trying to survive anymore. These are uh, men in modern times, and so they still have a, a lot of these uh, this pent up energy and this wildness in them, and they needed to go place to, to be wild, and that was that was uh, what these clubs were all about back then. Um, you also had you know the Friday Street Club, which was a 17th century club that had a lot of nostalgia. Uh, they met at a place called the Mermaid Tavern and hosted the likes of Ben Johnson and John Doan and John Keats. Or you have a place like you know the early 18th century. 18th century scribblers club with Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift. So, um, in a way, Tolkien and his friends really sort of emulating what people already did back then and form these clubs where they could just be themselves and talk about whatever they want to talk about and geek out about their interests and their eccentricities. So that's kind of in, in some what the TCBS was. And I, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking it's just a bunch of pre pretentious, you know, snobs who need to be uh, their own little clique. They, um, you know, you can only have so many good friends and you can only maintain so many relationships. I think they, you know, were already just forming with like-minded people and they made fun of a lot of high-minded uh, snobbery. And you can you can see this um, in their nicknames for one another. You can see this in the letters they wrote to one another. For example, um, Tolkien wrote Chris Wiseman. We have a letter where Tol Tolkien writes Chris Wiseman, and he addresses him, Chris, as Gabriel, and he addresses and he signs it Beelzebub. So, Tol so Tolkien's putting himself in the lowly place, and he's putting uh, Chris Wiseman in the high place because they disagreed about religion. Um, so they had these funny nicknames. Also, uh, they would talk in old archaisms, like when Ro Rob Gilson, uh, one of Tolkien's great friends in the TCBS, he wrote him a letter inviting him to come stay at his house. And instead of just saying, hey, you know, you sending him a normal invitation, would you, you know, like to come over at this time and place? He would say things like, will you be staying with us under our great ancestral hearth? Or will you be making use of our roof tree? So they, they would kind of have, have fun with things that they had read in older works of fiction and, you know, use them, replace commonplace words and phrases with those as sort of a uh, inside joke. They also played rugby together. Um, and, uh, Tolkien, although he was slight and kind of, you know, not a very big person, he, 
earned a reputation for speed and determination on the rugby field. And Chris Wiseman, who played on the team, uh, he was called the Prime Minister on the field. So uh, Tolkien's nickname was actually the Secretary, which I think is kind of funny. And it was because of his involvement in the TCBS. Um, the TCBS consisted of J.R.R. Tolkien, Chris Wiseman, Rob Gilson, G.B. Smith, and T. Cake Barnsley. Together, they comprised the TCBS. So Tolkien played rugby. Um, there's some really cool old photographs of him with other guys at the uh, who went to King Edwards on the rugby pitch in their uniforms. Are really, they're very Victorian and, and nostalgic looking. Um, and uh, he broke his nose and lacerated his tongue. Uh, and some people say that he kind of speaked with a mumble for the rest of his life because of he, I think he bit through his tongue on the rugby pitch. But um, he didn't get out of rugby without sort of geekifying it slash Greekifying it. Tolkien's first publication was in the Edward, King Edward School Chronicle, and it was entitled The Battle of the Eastern Field. And I'm going to read it to you. Skeet marked the slaughter and tossed his flaxen crest and towards the green-clad chieftain through the carnage pressed who fiercely flung by Skeet lay low upon the ground till a thick wall of leaguemen encompassed him around. His clients from the battle bare him some little space and gently rubbed his wounded knee and scanned his pallid face. Pretty funny. So, this weird kind of poem where Tolkien's taking this archaism uh, and, and using sort of an old poetry style to describe this kind of down-to-earth rugby pitch. What's that all about? Well, uh, I think, one, uh, I know uh, you're probably wondering what we're all wondering right now. What is a skeet? Now, according to Vocabulary.com, a skeet is a divine goddess, a lion-headed Egyptian goddess that typifies the destroying power of the sun. And skeet is spelled S-E-K-H-E-T if you want to look it up yourself. One author, John Garth, who's incredible, if you've never read Tolkien the Great War and you want to know more about the TCBS, you want to know more about how World War One affected Tolkien as a person, you should definitely read Tolkien the Great War. It's awesome. And John Garth is just, he's a genius. He's awesome. So Tolkien uses this word skeet. And um, uh, people want, John Garth does believe, would say Tolkien may, maybe didn't know what it meant. I think he did because... And I think it was an inside joke between him and Chris Wiseman. Chris Wiseman loved Egyptian history and hieroglyphics and that sort of thing. And I think Tolkien got a kick out of switching the word for football with an Egyptian goddess. Uh, for them to be toting an Egyptian goddess around the rugby field, I just think that's a funny mental picture. And I think it's too significant for it to just be happenstance. He probably was just kind of having a fun jest at Chris Wiseman and, and using that word when they both really know what it meant and probably no one else did. So, but what... What is the other thing going on here where he's, you know, Tolkien's first publication and he's kind of comparing rugby to a battle. There, there's, there's more happening there. Um, in Tolkien's time period, uh, they kind of likened sports to warfare. Okay. It was sort of the dignified way of getting out that aggression and just demonstrating the same courage and heroism and, and, and dogged determination that you would in battle, but in a more civilized environment where the stakes are not as high, right? Um, but it's kind of... It, this poem is a snapshot of the mindset of that generation, the Edwardian, a generation that grew up in pastoral England and you know saw all this industrial change, saw changes, sociopolitical change, all these sort of new things happening in the world, 
uh, that really jarred with the, the idyllic past that they grew up in. To emphasize this point that this young generation who um, had all this talent and ambition and artistic giftings um, didn't really understand what modern warfare was about to bring into their lives and what kind of apocalyptic tragedy uh, the mo modern warfare can be. Um, one poet, Philip Larkin, uh, he said that when men would line up to enlist for World War I, um, they would almost treat it like they were just going to a, a cricket match. You know, or they were just, you know, they were just going to sing songs like they would before they went and played a rugby game. Um, before a lot of the first battles happened in World War, World War I, there were men who, you know, would make jokes and, and just kind of treat it like, you know, we're just kind of going to parade for our country and... Um, you know, they had all this sort of triumphalism and, you know, they, they thought that they were, they didn't know what was about to happen. They were innocent of all of that. Um, you know, all of that would, would soon change, you know, at the assassination of the Arctic Ferdinand in Austria and the outbreak of World War I. Uh, but before we get there, uh, one last thing I want to say about Tolkien's uh, life at King Edward's before he graduated. He also did some acting, okay? Well, you kind of mentioned that before. Um, that in the TCBS, they, they all kind of were in school plays and were on the rugby team and all read together and studied together. Um, Tolkien played the part of Hermes in the Greek classical play, play the piece. It's sort of a farewell to his school. So, you know, if you've ever seen that play or you've ever played that role yourself, Tolkien actually played that role too. So, Tolkien graduates from King Edward's and then it's off to Oxford where he's going to study the, he's going to start studying the classics and then he'll move on to other things that are more interesting to him. And he'll begin to form into that uh, professor that we know as Professor Tolkien. But that would all have to be put on hold. The love of his life would be, have to be put on hold. All of his dreams would have to be put on hold for World War I, which we'll talk about next in part two.